0: It's really great to see each and every one of you here today. Um, Thank you, yes, to Nick and the band. Nick, it's so great to have you back. We've missed you. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Jana and Doug, for those announcements and for um, Kim and Jamie for being our candle liturgists for today. That was a real blessing. Well, it's so lovely to be here with you this Sunday before Christmas. Um, The sun is shining. It's been a while since we've had a a sunny Sunday. Two Sundays ago we had Diaspora Sunday where we had chairs set out in the middle and then it started raining and then people <laughs> scattered to the sides for cover. And then last Sunday, I'm gonna give Dustman credits for this, but we had the Parting of the Red Seas Sunday where there was Lake, um, Lake Highway which is a, a commonplace occurrence on rainy days because the draining is not great here. So there's a lot of water in and around highway during the rainy season, which is what you're learning this morning. Um, But I hope that for all of you visitors who are here, and it's so nice to see you here, um, some extended family, some college students that are returning, it's great to have you here, and hopefully you're enjoying our our better weather. Um, So welcome everybody, and welcome back. This morning we're continuing on in our Advent teaching series, The Herald. Advent stems from the Latin word coming, and throughout Advent we're celebrating and longing for Jesus's coming by tracing John the Baptist's birth and his message and his ministry, which heralded Jesus's arrival and the inbreaking of his kingdom. God works through John to be a vital link between Old Testament prophecies and New Testament realities. John provides this link as the long-awaited prophet that the Old Testament foretold would prepare, would precede the coming of the Messiah. And he was the messenger who would prepare the way for and point to the present arrival of Jesus. John heralds the future coming as well as the present arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this and prepares the way for Jesus' arrival by preaching a message of repentance. Repentance born from a changed mind and a new understanding of God's kingdom. And repentance which produces a changed life, reflecting the fruit of God's kingdom, as we learned last week. A core component of John's ministry is baptism. And this is what we encounter him doing as we start up today. So I invite you to turn with me to today's passage. It's Matthew chapter three, starting in verse 13. And let's make our way to a spot along the Jordan River together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, I am well pleased. So here we find Jesus at the Jordan River to be baptized by John, which comes as a complete surprise for John. I can't even imagine what this would have been like for him. I mean, there he was, just where he often was along the Jordan River, doing what he so often did as his nickname, the Baptist, would suggest, Throughout his ministry, John baptized throngs of people from Judea and Jerusalem, from the poor to the rich and from all walks of life. All of these people who went out of their way into the wilderness to confess their sins and repent and be baptized by him. But this moment in this baptism would be unlike any other. Jesus arrives and makes it known to John that he is to baptize him. Jesus, whom John prophetically recognized while he and the Messiah were in their mother's wombs. Jesus, whose sandals John said just mere verses prior that he's not worthy to carry. Jesus, for whose coming John has devoted his entire ministry. Jesus, who is without sin and has nothing for which to repent. He encounters John and conveys that he is to be baptized by John. This just doesn't seem right to John. He even tries to deter Jesus, thinking it should be the other way around. It's not apparent to John how it makes any sense that he is to baptize Jesus. And it probably doesn't make any sense to him that John that Jesus participate in his baptism or any other for that matter. Now, John's baptisms were distinct from the rest. Let's look at some significant differences between John's baptisms and those that were done around him by the then-religious leaders, as well as those that were done before him. Old Testament ritual cleansings were rooted in purification. Old Testament cleansings were, in fact, pervasive in Jewish culture, and had been performed for a thousand-plus years. These ritual washings were all about purification. Under Old Testament law, animals, places, and people could be considered unclean. And there were lots of ways that one could be defiled or to defile others. Having an infectious disease, giving birth to a child, coming into contact with an unclean person, the list of ways one could become unclean in the Mosaic law is really long. Now... Purity was the way to holiness, so cleansing was an important part of living a life of holiness and an important part of Jewish culture, which John the Baptist would know really well, being from the line of Levi and being the son of a priest, steeped into the day-to-day realities of the rituals and laws of cleansing and purity and holiness. So, Old Testament cleansings were about purification. John the Baptist's baptisms, on the other hand, were rooted in repentance. As we learned last week, biblical repentance is turning or returning to God and away from sin. It comes from a a changed mind and a changed understanding. And John's baptisms symbolized the presence of a changed mind and a changed understanding. His baptisms were symbolic, public, and embodied acts of repentance. So, while Old Testament cleansings were rooted in purification, John's baptisms were rooted in repentance. Another distinct difference between Old Testament washings and John's baptisms is related to temporalness. Old Testament ritual cleansings presented a temporary state. They produced something that was temporary and that's a state of purity Cleansing addressed the need for purification in that moment, in that moment only. However, one could become unclean again and need cleansing again. So the Israelites cleansed themselves repeatedly, and often we see references and examples of this throughout the scriptures. In 2 Kings 5, Elisha sent a messenger with instructions, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. In Leviticus 8, Moses washed Aaron and his sons with water before their ordination as priests. And in Exodus 40, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet when entering the tent of meeting. And what's more, In Exodus 40 verse 32 it goes on to say they washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar. Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet before entering the tent of meeting or approaching the altar each and every time. And that's because Old Testament ritual cleansings produced a temporary state. On the other hand, John's baptisms represented a transformed state. Baptism. There are actually two closely related words for baptism in the New Testament. Neither of which, by the way, are found in the Old Testament because they're Greek words. So anyways, one of these words conveys something temporary and the other, something completely changed, something completely transformed. The first word is bapto. The first word, bapto, means to dip or to immerse. We see this in Luke chapter 16, in Jesus' story of a wealthy man who's suffering in hell. This man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to dip, or bapto, his finger in water to cool his tongue. So that's bapto. The second word is baptizo. As you've probably figured out, it's derived from the word bapto. And as you've probably also figured out, it gives us the English word, baptize. In fact, baptize is an untranslated word, it's transliterated. In transliteration, each letter of a foreign word is given its English equivalent. So here, the final O or omega in baptizo was dropped, and the English E was added to give us the verb, baptize. We see this word twice in Romans 6:3 which says or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. The word used here is the past tense of baptizo. So, if bapto means to immerse or dip and baptizo involves immersion or dipping of some sort, how do these words differ? Well, the Greek classical writers can provide us some help here. They use the word baptizo starting about 400 BC, and their usage illuminates the distinction between these two words. A great example comes from the Greek poet and physician, Nysander of Colophon. He lived around 200 BC, and he uses this word, bapto, as well as the word baptizo in a recipe, which is sort of amazing to me that Millennia later, this recipe is still known. And he didn't even post a time-lapse video of him doing this recipe and posted it on TikTok or YouTube. And if he did, imagine how many views he would have had by now. But anyways, he writes up this recipe by making, for making a pickle, and it goes something like this. Step one, dip or bapto the vegetable into boiling water. Step two, baptize or Baptizo, the vegetable in a vinegar solution. And voila, what you now have is a pickle. Steps one and two involve immersing the vegetable in a liquid. The first step dealt with the outer stuff, the contamination, the dirt, and basically dealt with the stuff that you don't want to eat. And it produced a change which, depending on circumstance, could be totally temporary. I mean, my Thander could have dropped the vegetable on the floor and unless he invoked the three second rule probably would have put it back into the boiling water to remove the dirt and the impurities again. So step one, temporary. Step two, however, is transformative. Step two produced outer and inner change which resulted in something completely transformed. It permanently transformed the identity of the pickle. What was a cucumber? is now a pickle. Transformation, change from the inside out, change that impacts one's identity and one's lived life through a new understanding of God's kingdom. This is what John the Baptist's baptisms represent. This is what his rep- baptisms represent. And so as such, There is no need to be baptized multiple times. These were one-time immersions. So while Old Testament washings were about purification and produced a temporary state, John's baptisms were rooted in repentance and represented transformation. John the Baptist's baptisms were also unique in that they heralded the spirit. His ministry of baptism prepared for a greater baptism One not with water, but with the Spirit. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 32, we read, Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down, And remain is the one who will baptize with the holy spirit i have seen and i testify that this is god's chosen one upon jesus's emergence from the waters at his baptism the father identifies his beloved son and as well the spirit identifies jesus God told John that the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit would be the one on whom the Spirit would remain. So, as the embodied Holy Spirit manifest as a dove, alights and anoints the Son. Jesus is clearly identified as the one who would extend the baptism of the Spirit upon its pouring out would begin a new age. John the Baptist announces the age of the Spirit, and Jesus does as well. In the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus comforts his disciples who are troubled after he tells them that he's going to be with them only a little while longer. Starting in verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. and I am in you. Jesus promises the spirit will come after he leaves, and that spirit will be present with them and within them forever. Following Jesus' resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven, he restates this promise that the spirit will come Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1:5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then, after Jesus' ascension, a little over a week later, the Spirit fulfills that promise. The Spirit is poured out at Pentecost like a great wind, and reminiscent of the Spirit's presence at Jesus' baptism, rests on each and every believer. The Spirit transforms each and every one of them and empowers them and dwells within them and gives them great gifts. The Spirit continues to transform and empower and indwell God's people today and gives us great gifts as we live in the age of the Spirit. The union of God the Son with God's people is made possible by God the Spirit. The Spirit is the ongoing presence of Jesus with us and within us. The Holy Spirit gives us the gift of Jesus, the gift of God with us, the gift of Emmanuel forever. The Holy Spirit is the gift of Emmanuel forever. On Thursday, I was working on this message, and I was thinking on an illustration of the spirit giving good gifts. And it was actually kind of tough, because, well, the spirit's at work all the time, and lots of examples came to mind, so like, which to choose? And it was also kind of tough to think of an illustration, because I was really feeling for my husband, Ted, who was suffering with a terrible finger infection, and he'd been suffering with it for the last day and a half. I felt so bad for him. Our friend and fellow highwayers, Sandra Peck, who's a dermatologist, she'd kindly been giving Ted advice throughout this entire ordeal. And around five o'clock, basically said, it's time to go to urgent care. Getting started on antibiotics soon would be smart. So Ted promptly left the house and headed to urgent care. And so after he left, I sat myself back down, and I started brainstorming on stories of the spirit giving good gifts. And then in that process, my friend Rosa came to mind. Some of you know her. Uh, Rosa spoke at our Advent celebration about a week and a half ago, and she shared a few of her stories as an unhoused, underhoused working mother who lives with her husband and three young children in an RV in a nearby safe parking lot. The spirit has clearly been moving in and through Rosa to give her and others good gifts. So, I'm thinking of Rosa. And I then remember that one of her sons has been sick, and so I decide to check in with her and I pick up my phone, and it's about 6.30 p.m., and to my surprise, there's a text from Rosa. She sent a picture of her five-year-old, but unfortunately, it's a sad photo. He's in a clinical setting, Um, medical providers attending to him while he sits forlornly in a chair. Well, he's been seen seen for a high fever and it's really scary. She tells me that she was at El Camino Hospital and that she's left to go and get meds. So we stay in touch and we continue to text intermittently. About an hour later, now it's like 7.30, I ask if she's home yet. Rosa says she's dropped off her son at home and now she's in line at the pharmacy. I ask if she likes some company and Rosa sweetly declines. She says it's too late, it's too cold, and she'll be fine. But still, I ask her where she is. Walgreens on Grant and El Camino, she says. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're not far from my husband. And I think of Ted, who went to the Pam for urgent care, which is less than a mile away. Rosa is alarmed to hear that Ted's at urgent care and she asks what happened to him. I tell her about his finger and she says that she's praying for him and for the entire family. So now Ted's on my mind and I call him and I ask him if he's still in the waiting room because, you know, urgent care. (laughs) You do know. (laughs) So to my surprise, not only has he been seen, he's at the pharmacy waiting to pick up medication. I know. And, and so he, he tells me that like, the fast part has already happened. Now he's in this very slow, long line, um, uh, maybe a dozen people deep. I feel so badly for him. I ask him if I could get the meds for him so he could come home. He sweetly declines, not wanting to interrupt my night, but still I ask him, where are you? The corner of Grant and El Camino, he says. And I'm like, wait. Are you at walgreens he says yes and i'm like do you see rosa she's there with her to get some medication for her sixth son and so ted looks down this long line and sure enough five people away there's rosa and i hear them greet each other and laugh through the phone well, on seeing him, Rosa immediately asks about Ted's finger, and Ted immediately asks about Rosa's son. Amazing. So then, of course, I hop in my car, <laughs> and I drive to the Walgreens on Gran El Camino. <laughs> By 8 p.m., there the three of us are, laughing and marveling at this meetup that the spirit gifted us. So this whole time, And even well before the time I was trying to think of a story of the Spirit at work, giving gifts, there was a story unfolding before me, through the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit. When I got to Walgreens, I sat beside Rotha, who was waiting for her prescription to be filled, and she told me of this really strong urge that she had to text me after she left the hospital. Had she not followed the spirit's nudging, had she not done that and not texted me, I would have never known that she was there. And then she and Ted would have never known that they were close to each other, like 15 feet apart. They would have had no idea. So go, Rosa. And had Sandra not been moved to be available to and graciously help Ted, or had she not been moved at a very specific moment to raise the red flag and say, "Okay, now, now it's time to go to urgent care. Had she not done that, then frankly, Ted would have suffered another night of terrible sleep and the timing wouldn't have been orchestrated the way that it had been. So go, Sandra. And had Ted not heeded the advice of Sandra and gone to urgent care, and left when he left, and communicated where he was to me, and approached Rosa to let her know that he was right there. Had he not done those things, Rosa would never have known that they were there together. So go, Ted. And then for some reason, the Spirit honored me with the opportunity to make it known to Ted and Rosa that they were right beside each other. Two people I care so deeply about formerly suffering alone, but also right beside each other. Everyone was in the flow of the Holy Spirit. Go Holy Spirit. By the way, Rosa's son and Ted's finger are feeling so much better. And I'm glad to say that they're on the other side of the hump, so go God. by the Spirit's presence in and through the four of us, Rosa and Ted got an unexpected gift of a little joy and a little laughter on a really rough night. They got to experience Jesus with them through the presence of one another as sojourners at the local Walgreens. This gift was made possible by God with us, by Emmanuel forever. This was a gift made possible by God with Ted and with Rosa and with Sandra and with me forever. Advent is the season of Emmanuel, God with us. It's time to celebrate the coming of God with us thousands of years ago and it's a time for us to look for God with us today. We've been participating in these weekly spiritual practices and postures and centered on a theme throughout Advent to prepare our hearts for Jesus's coming, for his arrival. As we've done so, we've reflected on an accompanying formation question, and we've written a word or phrase of response on an ornament, and hopefully you saw your Advent ornament on or near your chair when you arrived. We've reflected on the themes of look, prepare, and understand. In this, the fourth week of Advent, our theme and spiritual posture is receive. John's baptisms heralded the one who would come and baptize not with water, but with the Spirit. As Christ followers, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of God with us, and God within us forever. The Spirit has so many gifts for us. The Spirit has so many gifts for you, what gift is God inviting you to receive through the presence and power and movement of the Holy Spirit this Advent season? What gift is God inviting you to receive through the Spirit? Perhaps it's the gift of hope, or strength, or wisdom, or guidance or perhaps intercession at a time when all you have are wordless groans. As we enter into worship, you are invited to reflect and write a simple word or two, or draw something on your ornament which represents a gift that you're feeling called to receive through the Holy Spirit. And as you do so, consider what it could look like to receive those gifts this season. Perhaps that might look like slowing down or asking for help or maybe joining us at our longest night service this evening. After you've written or drawn on your ornament, you're invited to come to an Advent Art installation station. There are two indoors and there's one outdoors. While you're there, please place your ornament in the basket and feel free to take a look at the ornaments that are around those trees or the trees in the vicinity to see the sacred reflections of your church community throughout this Advent season. Church, the Spirit has gifts for us. May we receive those in abundance this Advent season. Let's pray. Spirit who indwells. Thank you for your enduring presence. Thank you for guiding us and helping us and moving us. I thank you for your your good gifts, and I pray we would be attuned to them now and that in this season, which so often seems to pull us in so many different directions, we would be aware of your movement. May we receive what you have for us. Meet us and move us, Emmanuel, forever. For it's in Jesus' precious name I pray.